Do zombies burn? Oh, do they? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. From summoning Everest to running orphanages in Africa, from winning world championships to overcoming the grief of losing a child, our guest stories continue to inspire us by delivering shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. And welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast, the underground edition, because as you've just heard, the year is 2100. Welcome to my co-host, Ben. Prop. Hey, Tim. How are You're you? You're looking pretty good for the year 2100. I haven't aged a bit. Cryogenically frozen. <laughs> and most importantly, our guest, Mick Nevin. Yes, hello, gentlemen. Welcome to the apocalypse. <laughs> now, Mick, I'm not sure I'm so comfortable to be here, but we know it's inevitable. Well, this is our first apocalypse, mate, but this isn't your first radio, is it? No, look, I've, I've taken uh, guests through several different <laughs> apocalypse scenarios, and I want to just say that this is the most thoughtfully paced out one of the lot this is really well planned and back you know you put a lot of effort into it let's just start at the start shall we uh, i'm going to need to find out that what are you two gentlemen bringing to the apocalypse what skills well we're two xsas guys with mbas are either of those things useful the, the, i reckon the mba would be handy in a, <laughs> yeah. in a zombie apocalypse wouldn't it <laughs> bit of a profit and loss on the the marauding hordes get a good gantt chart mm. i reckon I'd love to. Mick, I would love to be able to say I'm bringing nunchuck skills to the, <laughs> the old Napoleon Dynamite sort of. I, I got nothing, mate. I, Tim and I were both officers, as anyone who has served in the military will know. We're useless. We're useless. Are these slow, sort of Romano-style zombies, or are they fast, twenty-eight days later-style zombies? Well, we've got Europeans, we've got Americans, we've got the UK. Perth is the last living city, the last yeah, bastion. It's not looking yeah. good, and Asian. People zombies. <laughs> Are they? I think they all have nunchuck skills. <laughs> Good. Zombie stereotypes. Excellent. Well, we've got some useful skills that came through, not just selection, but also the courses that we did in the SAS regiment, including combat survival. Yep, that would be handy. Close quarter battle. Yep, also handy. You know, one thing we did, and, and we'd often bandy this around in the unit, is that we're there to perform missions without precedent. So, you know, part of what the unit is there to do, and special forces units have always done, is come up with those solutions to things that had never happened before. Yep. So, you know, the, the uh, Sante raid in Vietnam, so getting the mission to get prisoners out of a North Vietnamese camp, no one had ever done that before, so they had to invent a way to do it. Uh, Counterterrorism, once that sort of flared up in the 80s, we had to work out how to do siege hostage situations. So this idea of being able to face a novel challenge and adapt existing skills to a new environment, I mean, that's at the crux of special operations since it's very genesis. And so zombies, I reckon, would be no different. Yeah. You'd, you'd be adapting your existing skills in a, in a zombie threat. And we're all about small groups delivering disproportionate effects. Yeah, maximum, maximum impact for... Yeah, yeah. We need an obstacle plan as well. I, I like the idea of channeling the zombies into our killing grounds. Worked well in the Z. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, channeling, put them where you want is the uh, 
That's mm. the. So what don't they like that we could use to channel them into the killing ground? Reality TV. Well, they like humans, <laughs> so we could do. <laughs> yeah. We could, they like humans, so we could do a reverse channeling, couldn't we? Oh, the lure. The lure. The lure. Is, is that you? Are you the? <laughs> well, arguably, it should be the fastest runner, Mick. What about uh, all those park run people? They'd be there great. There we go. Yeah, they've got skills. We could use them as the human lures, unless they've already been turned. In which case, <laughs> can you imagine a pack of those Saturday mornings. You'd be fucked. <laughs> you'd be you yeah, eight a.m. Saturday morning. You're staying away from the front line. <laughs> I've got an idea. What about some form of entrapment that's mm-hmm. going to hold them there for long enough for us to crossbow them in the head, spike them in the head? So think a molasses-style obstacle. <laughs> we empty anything sticky into a large pit. Molasses. It could, it, it, it's going to be called the molasses trap, but yep. I use that metaphorically. It could be anything that's going to slow them down to the point where we get a speed advantage. Yep. yep. And imagine how, imagine how great Bunnings would be. Bunnings is a first stop, yeah, oh. in, a, uh, in that situation for sure. Well, that's your supply chain. You said before about logistics, but those things are bloody everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so you want to hold the Bunnings. Well, that's pretty the, much. the key ground. Yeah, that, I, th- I that's, reckon that's our, that's our regional centres center, of gravity. That's where you could organise your militias around. Yeah. Yes. Now you're thinking. Every little Bunnings. Sausage scissors. Hang on, hang on, Sausage scissors. I'm excited. I reckon bring the it end on. of the world. Yeah. Well, our, I, to my earlier point, I reckon it would be a simpler time. You know, we, yeah. we would not be worried about some of the stuff that occupies our minds. We would just be worried about zombies. Sometimes I think that's a thing that, you know, it wouldn't hurt everyone to be hungry for a week, you know, oh, yeah. or to, you know, to take, you know, put, put just lock people in a room for a week, get really hungry, and then you go, what do you think's important? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I tell you, and the other thing is to get bored. When was the last time you were bored? There's always something yeah. happening. You know, we're distracted the whole time. We never are alone with our thoughts. Because there'd probably be, sorry, Mick, there'd, there'd probably be a few bit of downtime in yep. a zombie, you know, your TVs are off, no internet. Takes a while to dig a molasses pit. <laughs> where's, where's the molasses coming from, mate? The, the sugar, sugar fields of Cottesloe? No, oh, you can... Look, don't worry. Leave it with me. Yeah, leave it with me. Um, Woolworths. You can task a special team to look into the molasses. There'll be a standard for building these molasses pits. I'm not accepting any, you know, old hole. I reckon we got it scun, Mick. Yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty good uh, pretty good episode. Alyssa Azar. Now, I don't know what you were doing at eight years old, but she walked the Kokoda track at the age of eight. I'm not sure what you were doing at 10 years old, but by 10, she'd climbed the 10 highest peaks in Australia. Then she climbed Kilimanjaro at the age of 12. At the age of 19, she summited Everest and then went back two years later and did it all again. So let's leave 2014 and 2015 behind where circumstances beyond your control meant that you got to base camp and no further. And let's come to May 2016. And Alyssa, you were 19 years old and back in base camp. Talk to us about that attempt on Everest. 
yeah, so my third attempt, um, 2016. So this time I was climbing with a different climbing team because I'd had a fair bit more experience now. So I remember leaving base camp two o'clock in the morning, starting to climb through that ice fall um, where we have a lot of those crevasses. And there were certainly some pretty intense moments. Um, I remember sort of within the first 30 minutes of climbing up through the ice fall, it was pitch black um, because we were starting at two in the morning. And in the space of about 30 minutes, three big avalanches went off um, and I could hear them, but I couldn't see them. Hmm. And so I remember that morning we had four climbers on our team pull out. We actually don't sleep at these altitudes um, and you really can't anyway. It's hard to eat. It's hard to sleep. And at this point, I'd lost probably about 10 kilos of muscle. There's a lot of adrenaline leaving that final camp um, because a lot of accidents do happen up higher because of the altitudes. I would count out the next 10 steps and that was like max capacity. So, you know, they call it the Everest shuffle. You kind of take one step and you have to breathe twice and you take another step. So from the outside, it probably looks really slow, but you feel like you're sprinting, um, Mm. but you just can't move any faster. So Everest shuffle, moving towards Hillary's step. (laughs) You get to Hillary's step. Talk to us about Hillary's step to some. Yeah, so that's within the final hour. Um, So I remember getting up to a point that's called the South Summit, which is basically a false summit before you get to the true one. Um, And I I remember seeing that final ridgeline and I just couldn't believe it. And so then we get to the Hillary Step, which is um, a rock section. This section actually requires climbing. Um, So you're now trying to rock climb at that altitude, um, which was incredibly challenging. But the Hillary step is the final obstacle before the summit. Um, But yeah, I remember kind of having to summon any energy I had to rock climb this section um, and then got to the top of that. And then it's only a few steps toward the actual summit, um, which, yeah, it was a very surreal moment. Um, I'd always imagined pretty much for years what it would feel like standing on the summit and even taking those final few steps um, and then it was actually happening. But yeah, it was just incredibly surreal to finally get there. Ben, this one is difficult for me. And I'm going to summarize this by saying I'm not afraid of anything in the world, genuinely, except one thing, outliving my children. Here in Perth, there's a normal bloke, a dad who loves his sport and his kids. But in 2013, Rod Bridge, that normal Aussie bloke, lost his son. His son Preston died at the age of 16 after taking a synthetic form of LSD during a school ball after party. Now, anyone that is a parent, a godparent, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, or a high school student, you must listen to this episode. Tim Jack Adams in a previous episode said it's okay to feel vulnerable and for some reason, something about this boy has always gripped me personally. Let's get on with the show. Rod. Thank you for joining us today on the Unforgiving 60. Perhaps we could start by a bit of a description of Preston. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, Preston, um, you know, very personal, very likable 16-year-old kid. 
um, loved by everybody, by parents, grandparents and, and all his mates. Amy and I went for, went for um, breakfast in the morning down, heading down to the beach and I said to Amy, give Pres a ring and so she rang Preston and there was no answer and she texted him and then I rang him and no answer. And so at that point I knew there was an issue, there was something wrong because it's not like Preston not to answer his phone and I'm thinking maybe he's still asleep. And as we were driving down West Coast Highway, we came across some um, ambulances and police cars and it was like, boy, something's gone on here. And I noticed in the driveway there was someone or something under a white sheet. And we got about two k's away and then I had this cold chill went down my spine and I thought, nah, it, 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 this is something I've got to go back and have a look at. So I jumped out of the car and went across and then I saw the face of two of Preston's best mates. And the first thing I thought was Prez walk out from behind the wall or something. Just, you, you just pop up. Just show your face. Yeah. Uh, we waited about 10 minutes and then they took us up to the um, ICU where Preston was. And it was a really strange affair because you walk in the door and you see this absolute model of a kid with tubes and wires coming out, but lifeless, but still looked like he was still, you know, 100%. And so we decided just to stay with Prez and just, you know, yeah, just hold his hand, sort of all you can do. And the most fascinating thing happened to me then, I walked out the door and there was... I don't know, 100 kids and parents, grandparents, they're all there. And I thought to myself, this is a real, this is a tragedy. And uh, one of the girls that I knew, I asked her what the hell happened and she told me that the Preston had taken a substance called 25IM by him that one of the kids from school had given it to him and he got it from Silk Road. And then my first thought was Silk Road. Well, what's that? It's a, it's a street. <laughs> Shops in this, yeah. It's a suburb. And I said, what suburb is it, is it in? And she looked at me and she says, Silk Road's a website that they buy drugs from. So then I thought to myself, you know, I'm not a lecturer or an educator, but I thought to myself, these kids need to see this. So we took them in groups of eight and, um, you know, they all went in there and, you know, see big growing up kids that were Preston's mates walking out crying and some couldn't even walk, they were crawling. Then I realised, yeah, I realised then he was pretty special. So... Although no one really knows, there's an assumption that he thought he could fly? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they said he was talking foreign languages and, and he was scared there was a serpent chasing him and he didn't know what was going on. And that's where Fraser got really concerned, so he went down to get help. And, um, and you know, and the media reported it as Preston had fallen. Well, he didn't actually fall. Um, you know, you don't fall and land six metres away on a fence. Mm-hmm.